Good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever. Amen. So good to be back here with you. So good to see your loving faces and receiving your hugs and all of that. I always like to go home after leaving Pacific Cope and look at my coat and see all the makeup and lipstick and sweat. (laughs) This is a hugging church, and I am so grateful for your love and Thank you to the elders for allowing me to be here and share God's word with you. I also want to greet those of you who are viewing us uh, online and who will view online later. I'm glad that you have joined us this morning. I have been given the task of continuing to um, teach through Ephesians, which I believe you started last week or a couple weeks ago. I'm not too sure. But if you have a copy of God's word, I want you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. And this morning we will look at verses 3 through 6. I thank you as a guest speaker of getting the task to cover sovereign election and predestination. <laughs> but I know this church, and I know the foundation that has been laid here, a very good foundation in the doctrines of grace. If I was a guest speaker at a church that I didn't know too well, I'm not sure I would take this test. But... Um, I'm grateful, grateful for the word of God. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you please stand so that we can read his word? This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I'd like to begin this morning by giving us a quote from Charles Spurgeon when he came to this text. He said, I quote, Sit in your seats and keep on blessing God from the first word of the sermon to the last. And then go on blessing God till the last hour of life. And enter into heaven, into the eternal glory, still blessing God. It should be our life to bless him who gave us our life. It should be our delight to bless him who gives us all our delights. So says the text, so let us do. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask of you for three things. One, I pray that you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. The second thing I ask is that you would exalt your son, And the third thing I ask, Father, is that you would grant your people here this morning such a spirit of praise and worship of how wonderful and how marvelous and all of the wonderful things that you have done for us in Christ. I pray that we would be people that would praise you continually, as Spurgeon would say, until the end of life, and then enter into glory, continuing to praise you. That is my prayer, Father. 
By your spirit now, illuminate our eyes to see. Hide the messenger. Keep me from error, I ask. And edify your people. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I am so grateful for sound doctrine. As I know many of you are, it is vital to the strength and stability of the church. Without it, we would never know who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. And I'm grateful for theology and doctrine. But the whole purpose of learning doctrine and theology is to produce doxology. Did you get that? The whole purpose of wanting to understand and learn theology and sound doctrine is so that in return, you can see what God has done for us in his son and in that return to him, praise unending. And if all we are doing is learning doctrine and theology and it's not producing doxology, I would say that something has happened. Something needs to change here. The whole purpose, matter of fact, of the Bible is to worship and praise God for his wonderful kindness and his great mercy demonstrated in sending his beloved son to the cross for our sin. This just doesn't happen, doxology, on Sunday. Even though as we gather together corporately on the Lord's day, we do lift up our praises to him. But this should be a lifestyle This should be a living out of constantly praising and worshiping God, no matter what our circumstances are. May I just remind us real quick that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison. His circumstances are probably not as he wished it were, but even in the midst of prison, He opens up this wonderful book and this wonderful chapter with a praise of doxology for all that God has done for us in Christ. You know, we think of the Apostle Paul, a giant of the faith, I mean, the great apostle, the greatest evangelizer ever. But very seldom do we ever think of the Apostle Paul as a worship leader. And if you read his epistles, they are just filled with praises. Praises unending. And I, I thought, you know, why is that? Because I never really think of Paul as a worship leader, but he is. And this is what he's encouraging us here this morning to become. I get my answer of why Paul is a worship leader and why he is just so filled with praise. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. See if you could put yourself in his place here. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear his cry? I was once a blasphemer. I was once using my hands for wickedness and evil, my own desires. But when God's grace appeared, he saved me. And he welcomed me into his family. And he forgave all of my sins. And therefore, he has 
what we would call a heart of gratitude. Even in prison, just a heart of thankfulness that God, you would even remember who I am and show me such mercy. And that's my prayer this morning, that we would not leave, that we would leave differently than we came in. So I've just given you a, a, an easy outline here in your bulletin. We'll just look through three things. First of all, God is to be praised for blessing us in Christ. Blessed be the God. Eulagatos, hatheos. Blessed is God. Blessed be God. This word has to do with, it literally means good word. It means to speak well of a person. And by the way, this Greek word is only used in the New Testament referring to God because he is the only one worthy to speak well of, right? I'm not. You're not. He is the only one that is worthy to be praised. He is not only the Father, but he is the one who has blessed. And since he is the only one who can bless, blessed be God in return. Praise and worship unto him. Who is he? That he is to receive this speaking well of. He is none other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' humanity, the Father was Jesus' God and he was his Father. And Jesus in his humanity teaches us total dependence upon him and strength from his Spirit. And since he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of our union with him... This makes him also the God and Father of us. Try to wrap your brain around that. That the God of the whole universe is not only our God, but our Father. The one who raises dead people. The one who creates and speaks and everything is there. The one who calms the storms. Listen to John chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, Jesus said to her, Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. You just don't pass quickly over that passage right there. You have to stop and ponder what Jesus is saying. Isn't that wonderful? For all that God has done for us in Christ and now our union with Christ, he is our God and Father, who deserves praise an ending. What has he done to deserve this blessing? Well, Paul says that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. This term in Christ, you're going to see a lot. This is a theme in the book of Ephesians. Some say that this is probably the most important phrase in the whole book. It occurs 11 times in these six chapters, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. We see that a lot just in our passage here this morning and just in these, in these first chapters here. In Christ would mean that these blessings are given in and through him and are given only to those who are united to Christ. By the Father, those who have repented of their sins, trusted in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. 
these blessings that Paul will go on to mention now should cause us to just stand to our feet and thank God that he would do such a thing. These spiritual blessings, all of us do experience physical blessings. Praise God. I mean, we have wonderful physical blessings that we get to enjoy. We have loved ones. We have families. We have recreation, good weather, just all sorts of things. And those are all wonderful. But I want you to compare those blessings to a new heart. There's no comparison. If you are here this morning and you are in Christ and have received that new heart, church, I don't care if God would never do another thing for us the rest of our lifetime. If he never does another single blessing physically here, it would take us all of eternity to give him praise and thanks for giving us a new heart and placing us in the beloved. This is not a light thing. This is an amazing miracle only, we're going to find out, through the grace and mercy of our loving Father. Nothing in us would cause him to do that. Not only has he blessed us in Christ and with these spiritual blessings, but Paul mentions this word every. I like how this one charismatic brother said to another brother of another denomination, he asked him, uh, Hey, brother, have you received the second blessing yet? And the guy responded, second blessing? I've received the third, fourth, the hundredth, and the thousandth blessing. I am continually blessed by God because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessings. Every. Which basically means all, every, without exception. There is nothing lacking for us who are in Christ. Not only for this life, but in the life to come. God has provided all of that for us in Christ. And these blessings are in the heavenly places where Christ is now reigning and ruling. You know, I, I, there's probably many reasons why Paul wrote this letter. I think one of them is to encourage them and strengthen them in their faith. I'm taking my church right now through the book of Hebrews. And if you know much about Hebrews, the, the Christians who have brought, been brought out of Judaism are struggling and suffering persecution. Judaism was a, a legal religion back then, and they were protection. But for Christianity, anything goes. And they were tempted to drift away and go back. And what does the author of Hebrews do? He exalts Jesus Christ. He exalts Christ to have them get their focus on what Christ has done for us and that is the strength. I think this is what Paul is doing here. This is not necessarily a text about sovereign election and predestination, although it is there, and we will touch on that. What Paul is doing here, I believe, is encouraging the believers, encouraging us this morning, that no matter what you're going through, be reminded of all that God has done for us in Christ. You're a child of God. And though we may suffer, and though we may experience painful physical death, that will not separate us from God. Amen? So I think there's encouragement here. Christ is reigning in the heavens. And according later on to Ephesians 1, when you'll get to that, 
We are seated in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. You know, I think oftentimes, uh, Christians, we think too little of ourselves. And, I, and I, what I mean is we don't want to think highly of ourselves just by ourselves, but we want to think highly of ourselves in Christ. All the riches and the glories that have been given to us, there's a storehouse that God has given to us, and we forget oftentimes, due to suffering, according to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're sojourners here, aren't we? We're sojourners. We're travelers passing through. And some of our stay here is very short. Some of it's very long, filled with much suffering and pain, hurting. But our citizenship is in heaven. So we have to. We have to be able to get our gaze and our focus off here and on to heaven, onto the eternal life, onto what awaits us. That's what's going to give us grace and strength to endure. So Paul now is going to mention these spiritual blessings, and we're just going to cover two of them. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Doctrine of election. Probably safe to say that this doctrine is probably the most hated or the, the most doctrine that causes strife. This will cause divorces. This will end friendships, and it will divide churches. And I don't know why. Because election is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Is it not? Let me just tell you something real quick. Do you know how I came to hear about the doctrines of grace? Let me tell you just real quick. So I'm a children's pastor over here at San Diego Christian Worship Center. And I hear of a man named John Leader. So I call him and set up an appointment and we have lunch. And bless his heart, he opens up the Bible and begins to teach me right there. And I'm just saying, I don't even want to go back. I mean, it's more, more. I wanted to stay there for two or three, four weeks. It doesn't matter. Just keep, keep telling me this stuff. And John never beat it over my head. He never said, your way of thinking is wrong. All he did was just lay the text before me and said, read it. Just prayerfully read it. And that was it. And I would come back to him oftentimes with questions and he would always answer my questions. And that's how I came to learn of the doctrines of grace. It was just before my eyes. And as, as I continued to, to read it, I couldn't do anything about it. It was just staring at me in the face. So election is a theme throughout the Bible. Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham. Deuteronomy 7, God chooses Israel, right? Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. For you are my people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 1 Samuel 16, God chooses David as king. John 15, Jesus chooses his disciples. It's throughout the Bible. I can give us many more. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. I quote, 
until we have come to the place where we can sing about election with a full heart, we have not grasped the spirit of the New Testament teaching, end quote. Charles Spurgeon said, Whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it, end quote. As, as many times as people want to get rid of it, you just can't. It's just there. It's throughout the Bible. God's ultimate goal is not necessarily to save people. God's ultimate goal is to receive glory. And he receives glory by putting his mercy on display as his justice on display. He is jealous for his glory and will not give it to another. Amen? That only belongs to God, not us. Yet oftentimes, we are glory stealers, aren't we? We just want to hear the applause of man. I I did this, or here's what I did. It's just part of the fall. Just want to steal that glory from God, which only belongs to him. Now, the main problem that people have with the doctrine of election is they think that it takes away human free will. I don't see that. I don't. Now, when we talk about human free will, we're not talking about I can pick this folder up or I can point my finger or I can just walk up and shake your hand. We're not talking about that. Here's the question. When it comes to human free will, does man have the ability in his fallen, broken nature to choose God? That's the question. And this is what kind of separates, if you're new here or visiting and you don't know about the two sides, Arminian and and Calvinism, this is what would separate. The Arminians believe that, yes, man is broken and fallen in his condition, yet he's not completely There's still a little good in him, and as that good works with the grace of God, then God and man work salvation out together. Calvinism, on the other hand, would believe, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses and are unable to do anything, right? I mean, have you ever seen a dead person? They're, they're, They're not able to do nothing. I remember my father dead right before me and looking at him. He couldn't speak. He couldn't touch. He couldn't, nothing. So that's the question when it comes to the free will and sovereign election. Every one of us, and I mean every one of us, come with presuppositions to the scriptures. We all come to it because how we were raised or what our last pastor said or how, whatever it might be. We come to the text And we try to make it say what we want it to say. And that's not a very good way at all to read the scriptures. You have to come to the scriptures with humility and meekness, understanding that this is the authoritative word of God inspired by him, even though written by Paul. The Holy Spirit made sure that Paul wrote what he wanted to write. And we submit ourselves to it, even though we may not like it. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5. Pray for the, you know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'll just be honest. Can I be honest? Share my heart real quick. I don't like that verse. I don't. I don't like it. I don't want to obey that a lot of times. What am I going to do with it? It's a command. I don't have a choice in the matter. Here's what he says. 
Are we going to do it or not? Are we going to believe it or not? So be very careful when we come to the scriptures and try to make it say what we want it to say. What does it say? Even as he chose us in him. Eklego. Eklego is the word. Ek meaning out of. And lego, it means to choose. It's used of someone selecting or singling out someone from a crowd. It's like uh, um, childhood football games where you would get two guys up here that are captains and you got 10 guys out there and you'll say, uh, I'll take Sean. Okay, I'll take Mark. And that's what it is. It's just choosing. It's nothing in them. It has to do with the captains. It has nothing to do with the people. This God chose to choose. And then someone will argue just still because they just don't like it. Well, okay, yeah, God chooses because he sees down the corridor of time how people will respond to faith. Some will uh, respond positively and some negatively. And then because of that, God makes his choices. I will argue that's not the case. And let me give us two reasons, first of all. Is God omniscient? All-knowing? Why would he have to look down the corridor of time to see who will respond positively and negatively? Why would he have to do that? That would make me think he's not omniscient. And the second thing is, if he did look down the corridor of time, what would he see? Paul answers that in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 11, no one seeks after God. Listen to Paul in Romans 9, 11. This is the main text. Esau and Jacob, though they were not yet born and had done nothing neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. How do you read that? How do, you, how do you interpret that? They didn't do anything. This is before the foundations of the world. God has blessed us in the beloved here. This is before anybody and anything ever created. And remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me. That's a fact. That, that's, that's a true fact. No one can come to me Unless, so now something needs to happen. What needs to happen? The Father who sent me draws him. This is what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. No one can come to me unless something takes place. And that taking place something is the Father does something. Now, what are the reasons for God choosing us, by the way? God did not choose us just so that we get to go to heaven. And that's it. Now, that's a wonderful privilege, amen? But he doesn't stop there. God does not choose us and save us in Christ just so we can go to heaven and then just live however we want and do whatever we want. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So one of the reasons God chooses us is for holiness, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. One of my professors said, 
With the privilege of election comes the responsibility of living according to God's word, end quote. Amen? Positionally, yes, we are holy and without blame in Christ, of course. But that position is our basis to live holy living, right? Because we are positioned in the beloved before a holy God as perfect and holy, shouldn't that lead us and want us to live holy lives? One of the ways you can know of your election or salvation is do you live holy? Do you desire to be holy unto the Lord in body and soul? Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone for the, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for it. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And if we think that God has chosen us and now we can live however we want, we're greatly mistaken. I think of Peter and his gathering back then when he wrote to them in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He said these words, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one deed, you better conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile. If you call him father, and he judges impartially according to each one's deeds, you, can no long, you cannot say, well, because I'm saved, therefore I can just live however I want. Not according to this text. If you call on him who judges impartially, you better live out the remainder of your time in fear and in trembling. Those were his words to them. So we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Blameless without blemish, right? This is about the Old Testament sacrifices where you wouldn't dare bring a lamb that had a spot on it. You would not sacrifice that unto the Lord. This is why Paul, when he gets done with 11 great chapters of wonderful, rich doctrine, and he gets into the duty part, he begins with Romans 12.1, right? I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you would what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which, by the way, is our reasonable service. After all that he has done for us in Christ, that's just our reasonable service that we would do. We would present this body with holiness, without blemish, without spot, unto him. I think of Ephesians 5, 27 talking about how Christ loves his church. Listen, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even though we live in this world, we are to be separated from this world. We are to live in such a way to bring God glory 
And we don't want to live any way that would bring down our God and our Savior. Amen? We're to be lights into the world, into darkness, especially today how dark it is. My goodness. It just continues to get grosser and grosser. And instead of complaining how things are, I think what the church should do is start getting out and letting their light be seen. And let people see you're different. You don't do what we do. You separate from all that. Perfect opportunity to share the gospel. Second thing is adoption. Another one of my professors, Owen Strachan, said, The son cried, Abba, Father, in unspeakable agony, so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, in unspeakable joy. Don't you love that? The son cried, Abba, Father, in unspeakable agony, so that we might cry out, Abba, Father, in unspeakable joy. And because of the Father's choosing us and the Son, we now become his children and, according to Romans chapter 8, joint heirs with Christ. Meaning, whatever Christ has, we have. We share in the blessings of the Father. We share with Christ. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Predestination, pro-orizzo, to determine or to establish boundaries. It means to mark out the boundaries or limits of a place, thing, or a person beforehand. By the way, this Greek word, pro-orizzo, is never used of God predetermining a person's decisions, ever. It never, ever goes there. A person's decisions or choices, nor is it ever used of God coercing someone's choices. God is perfectly God to be able to do his sovereign decree through man's sinful, willful choices, amen? Look at the story of Joseph. Who's responsible for bringing Joseph down to Egypt? Well, his brothers, yeah? Sure. Also God, right? Because that was God's predetermined plan. Who, who was responsible for Jesus being turned over to the Roman guards? Well, of course, Judas, but also it was predetermined that that would happen. You see how that is? It doesn't take away free will. God, God, uses, free, God uses man's free will to accomplish his purposes. You see predetermined throughout the book of Acts in the New Testament. God beforehand, before the foundation of the world, predestined sinners deserving of death and hell to be his children. How could that not bring out of us a thankfulness? Instead, instead what it does is it brings out arguments, and it shouldn't be. In just John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, it's not going to be up on your, on your board here, but list these verses. John 17, 2. Listen to these. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. John 17, 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Question, when were they his? 
before the foundations of the earth. What Paul starts off with here. Without doing anything good or bad so that God's choice of election may stand, God chose them, and when God eternally decrees something, it doesn't matter what happens, it's going to happen. It's going to take place. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's just, it's right in our faces here. Why would God do this? Why would God look upon sinful man with grace and mercy and choose to save him? The only answer we get here is according to the purpose of his will. Or some translations say, to the kind intention of his will. Look at, look at down uh, chapter 1. Look at down in verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to, the purpose, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Here is my question. Why do we have a problem of letting God be God? Can he not do what he wants to do? Is he not the sovereign creator and without him there's nothing or no person? Does he not have the right to do what he chooses to do according to his will? I'm not going to stand up here at all and try to explain God's mind and God's will. Forget that. That's too high above my thoughts. Way high. But why do we have a trouble? Why do we have problems with letting God be God? Matter of fact, what he told Moses, right? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Let's just say, just for instance, I'll use Sean and Mark since you both are right in front of me. Let's just say walking in, I found $51 bills. And I come in and tell both of you, hey, guys, man, look at this. I just found $50. And I'm going to be nice. So, Sean, you're going to get 48 and Mark, you're going to get two. And Sean's going to go, wow, man, thanks a lot. And Mark's going to go, what? Hey, hold, hold on. What's he going to say? That's not fair. Why is it not fair? Did I owe them anything to begin with? No. I had it. I chose to give him $48, and I chose to give you $2. Did I do you any wrong? And the answer is no. And the same thing, I think, with God. I can't fully understand it, wrap my mind around it. I'm just grateful that every morning that I can recognize that I'm a child of God, not by anything that I've done, because he has predetermined it that I would be adopted into his family, and he makes me joint heirs of Jesus Christ. I don't want to argue that and figure that out. All I want to do is thank him. Thank you. Because I know who I was. And I knew, and I know where I was heading. And it wasn't good. And because of his marvelous mercy, he saved us. Do you see how that should draw gratitude and thankfulness and praise out of our beings. Now this word, word in love, some put it at the end of verse 4, some start at, the end, uh, started at the beginning of verse 5. I think it belongs with verse 4, but it could be in verse 5. In love. 
He predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. How about 1 John 3, 1? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? Do you see the love of God that he has poured out on us so richly in Jesus Christ that we, sinful, bad attitudes, lustful, fearful, just name it, that we would be called the children of the Most High God. It's amazing. So predestination is the love of God in demonstration. Instead of leaving us in sin and death, he chose us and he predestined us. And therefore, we should be grateful for this wonderful mercy that was shown to us. We need to be very careful, I think, of how people will say, well, God can't do that. God wouldn't do that. God didn't make us like robots, which you've, you've heard. And I would, under, I would say amen. I don't think God makes us like robots. But we need to be very careful when we say words like that. Because the Apostle Paul was getting some of that in Romans 9. And then he responded by saying this in Romans 9, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Think of how foolish that is. Have any of you ever been in clay potter class? I don't even know what you call it. You put the clay on the wheel and you spin it around. You take tools and you dig it out. And you make a nice vase or something like that. Has anybody ever done that? At any time, did the clay go, what are you doing? I don't know. But you see how foolish this is? So we want to be very careful of, of basically saying what God can and can't do. We don't want to go there. God can do anything he wants to do, and if he wants to adopt us as sons and daughters, our response should not be anger. Like R.C. Sproul would say, the question should not be, why does God choose some and not others? The question should be, why would God choose anybody if you understood who we are in Adam, there's nothing in us. There's nothing attractive. God doesn't need anything from us. He didn't need to make us. And yet he did, and he chose to display his mercy. And if you are here this morning, recipients of that mercy, praise God. And then finally, number three, look at verse six. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Don't you love that? Here's Paul's whole, whole thing, I believe, in these few verses, and I think here in just verses 3 through uh, 14. Not predestination, election, and all these wonderful blessings. It's just to worship him and to be thankful for all that God has done for us. Why did God freely give us all of these wonderful blessings? So that we would praise him. Look at verse 12 in chapter 1. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Praise. Praise. That's what this is all about. Praise. God puts his glory on display and blessing us with these blessings. And in return, we respond with blessed be God and speak well of him. All of these blessings 
are from a gracious, loving father who loves to give good things to his children. And he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let me remind us real quick as I close. Grace is undeserved favor, right? It's unmerited favor. You don't, you don't pay for this. You don't earn it. You don't buy it. You don't work for it. It is just something freely give. I freely gave them money. They didn't earn it. They don't deserve it. I could have given it to whoever I wanted to. I just chose to give it to them. This is what grace is. And we start thinking about, no, I, I, I deserve this or I should have this. Watch out. Watch out. As you know, I think Pastor John says a lot, you do not want to ask God for what you what? Deserve. You don't want to go there. Be happy that you're a child of God. Amen? I love the King James Version on this, verse 6. To the praise of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Don't you love that? Made us accepted in the beloved. God accepts us, not on our own, but on Christ, what Christ has done for us. I started with Charles Spurgeon. Let me close with Charles Spurgeon. I desire that you may this morning experimentally enjoy the precious drop of honey from the rock Christ Jesus, which is contained in the four words, accepted in the beloved. Oh, that the Holy Spirit may make you enter into treasures which they contain. May the Lord bless his word to his people. Let's pray. Father, we run out of time so much, so grateful for this wonderful book. I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit and inspired the Apostle Paul to write this so that we who participate in this, Father, just like everything, we so quickly forget the world, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. All of these things choke out your word. They get us distracted to where we would get our eyes on the things that are temporary and not on the things that are eternal. Father, I pray that this would just be a simple reminder to us as Pacific Hope continues to go through this wonderful book that we are to bless you, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the Beloved with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You have not withheld one blessing from your people. And Father, as I prayed before we started this service, I pray that you would grant us such a heart of thankfulness and gratitude for all that you've done for us in Christ, that it would completely change the way we live and look at things. We would complain less and be thankful more. All to your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.